Chapter 9 of Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Piotr Natter. Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. Chapter 9 by Helen Campbell. The Slums by Night. The Underworld of New York. Life and Scenes in the Dance of Infamy and Crime, Night Refuges for Women, Past Life, Christian Work Among Outcasts. Sunset has come, diffusing mellow light over the beautiful harbor and the fair islands of New York Bay. Nowhere is the soft twilight more enchanting. By five o'clock, the great warehouses along the riverfront and the office buildings and stores in the lower part of the city begin to empty themselves and merchants, brokers, lawyers, and clerks stream uptown to their homes, or to the substitutes for them found in boarding-houses. The heavy iron shutters are lowered. Office boys skip away with such alertness as is left in their tired little legs. We reporters straighten boxes and strive to bring order out of the day's confusion. Presently the night watchman comes in, and, save for the rush of the elevated trains, Lower New York, silent and forsaken, rests in quiet, till morning once more brings the stare and roar of traffic, and the anxious or eager or preoccupied faces of the men who are the rulers in the business world. They have come from homes where also quiet has reigned, from long rows of brownstone houses or of flats equally monotonous in effect. Save for some dinner or other occasional festivity at home or with a friend, or an evening at theatre or opera, most of them live lives which mean a day of work and a night of the rest earned by work. What other life is there to live, you ask? Editors, perhaps, and policemen, and a few erratic bohemians who turn night into day? These, of course, are not governed by ordinary laws, but they are the minority. The majority go to bed properly, you say. This is the conviction of thousands upon thousands, who have not the faintest thought that other thousands know daylight chiefly as a name, and begin their day just as reputable citizens are lying down to rest. As far as Mercury is from Saturn, is this underworld from yours, gentle reader. It opens to the sight only when night descends, and often within a stone's throw of the empty warehouses, and the silent spaces of forsaken streets are its most hideous phases to be seen. But the sum of horror that is the air of this underworld is by no means confined to these regions. In the twenty-ninth precinct alone, and this is a respectable portion of the city, there are over one hundred and thirty dens of death, and whole blocks where pandemonium reigns. The Cremorne mission lifts its little light in this region, but what is one mission against such odds? There are nearly six hundred of these dens of iniquity for the city as a whole. Vice flaunts itself openly in many an unsuspected place. There is the night side of life for the rich, and the night side for the pauper, and it is these two classes that befoul the night. Hard work is a great antidote to vice, and the man, young or old, who has done a hard day's work, has no energy left for dissipation. The gambling hells of the city and the dens of wickedness that abound on every side are filled, from eleven o'clock on, with men whose share in such life is often utterly unknown by those nearest and dearest to them. Were they all called, and each compelled to answer, 
it would be found that it included stockbrokers from Wall Street, great impostors, merchants, and representatives from every wealthy class in the city. The men who form this army go unscathed, so far as this world's judgment is concerned. The women end offer in Water Street, or in a cellar, or in the ward of a charity hospital, and they sometimes seek a final refuge in the dark waters of the East or North Rivers. Their places are quickly filled. There are no questions asked in this life, where all that is demanded is that pleasure shall not be mingled with troublesome reflections. For the silent player in the splendid gambling houses on Broadway, and for the sharer in the sports of the innumerable dance-houses of Sixth Avenue, which pour out their patrons into saloons or cheap oyster-houses at one or two o'clock on the morning, there is one and the same purpose. Paris, at its worst, has been the model for these forms of life, not only for New York, but for London, which also copies Paris, and whose night-life is as full of shame and horror as our own. Perhaps the worst phase of night-life, or ranking high among its worst, is the secret and insidiousness in which it works. For the most part, gambling hells hide behind a cover of respectability, and quiet houses in side streets opening from Broadway may be thronged all night, yet give no token of the business that is carried on in them, save the deserted appearance by day, the absence of any sign of family life. There is ample reason for this. The statutes of the state of New York impose heavy penalties on convicted gamblers, yet in no other place east of the Rocky Mountains is gaming so universal. Gambling houses flourish in spite of rigid laws, and there are said to be over 2,000 professional gamblers in New York who are known to the police. Their business begins when daylight has fled. Iniquity thrives in darkness. They are men of all orders, as far as methods are concerned. Some of the so-called first-class houses adjoin the most fashionable hotels, are superbly furnished and decorated, and often contain the choicest works of art in painting, sculpture, and bronzes. The most perfect service, usually by colored waiters, choice wines, and elaborate nightly suppers under the charge of famous chefs, are ready for all who visit these infamous establishments that sooner or later lures to ruin all who enter their doors. The second-class houses also flourish at night, and they are far more dangerous than the first mentioned, for their visitors are generally strangers in the city who have been roped in by agents of the gambling houses. Here everything belonging to gaming is openly displayed, but with every precaution. Doors are barred, sliding panels in them allow of inspection of the visitor before he is admitted, and everything adds to the sense of mystery, which to the country lad is half of the pleasure and charm. The majority of persons present in these houses are in league with the proprietors, and if the loser complains or shows fight when trickery is suspected or discovered, he risks not only his money but his life. Mysterious disappearances, so common in the record of the city's life, are often traced back to these houses, and no man is safe who ventures inside their walls. Policy dealing belongs under the same head, though a degree lower in infamy. All sorts and conditions of men engage in this, black and white, rich and poor. Superstition as to lucky numbers abound in a marvellous degree, and thousands of copies of a dream book are annually sold to patrons of these dens. Often the unhappy victim loses mind as well as money, 
and the lunatic asylums contain many patients brought there through the passion for gambling in this manner. Not only the excitement of the game, but the picturesqueness which is part of it, increase the temptation. On the west side there is an attempt to disguise the real character of the better order of resort. On the east the exact reverse is true, and all that light, warmth and color can do to enchant the attraction of the dance is done to the utmost. The Bowery is the main artery of night life on the east side. At night it is a blaze of light from one end to the other. It is a center for saloons of every order, from gin palaces to bucket shops. Theatres, concert halls, free and easies, and dime museums abound, all of them profusely ornamented with every device of colored light. The lamps of street vendors who throng here add to the general brightness, while the lowest dives have gay transparencies of every hue. In and out of these resorts pours a constant crowd. Shouts of laughter come from within, mingled with the sound of orchestra or the jingle of cheap pianos. The German music halls have respectable audiences. The rest are filled with young men and boys and girls barely out of their teens. The shooting galleries are no less crowded, brilliantly lighted, and often open to the sidewalk, gaudily painted figures serving as targets and every inducement being offered the passer-by to try his skill an air of briskness and general enjoyment surrounds all these places that is wonderfully seductive to boy or girl fresh from the lonely country life they take no note of anything but the bewildering excitement and interest of this gay life with all its light and color and though this moving throng shows many a man and woman in every stage of intoxication, often in the clutch of a policeman hurrying on to the station-house, but faint impression is made. From Chatham Square one turns off to the network of streets where crime lurks through the day to walk unabashed by night. The whole region is given over to the deepest poverty, and thus to its necessary and inseparable adjunct, vice when in a space of thirty acres, and this is what the fourth ward contains, seventeen thousand people are housed, vice is the first product and death the second. There are spots in London which are historical for their overcrowding, Whitechapel, St. Giles, Holborn, Southwark, but they are matched by the fourth, sixth, eleventh, fourteenth, and seventeenth wards in New York. In one room in one of these nests of crime fourteen people lived, and at night, after the usual debauch is ended, take their share of the floor for such rest as it may afford. Small wonder that they haunt the streets, or look with lowering brows on the passer-by. For many there is not even the floor. The night tramp of the lower order knows that he is one of an army made up of the men and women too lazy to work, and picking up a living as they can. During the day they beg at doors, steal, or commit large robberies, and are a terror and a nuisance to all who face them. In the summer the parks furnish them a sleeping place. The benches are filled with sitters who learn to sleep sitting, and so evade the police, who keep a sharp lookout for them. Often they crawl under the shrubbery, especially in Central Park. If they have enough money, they go to the cheap lodging houses, the number of which is constantly increasing, and where a bed can be had for five or ten cents a night. In one of them, lodging, food, and bath are given in return for so much time spent in sawing, splitting, and bundling kindling wood. But this house is not popular, save with the few who are willing to work. 
Such as these form one army, and an unfailing source of supply to city prisons and reformatories. There is yet another multitude tending towards the same life, and destined to meet the same fate, unless taken in time. The 15,000 neglected and homeless children, who last year were running wild in the city streets, and whose numbers do not lessen. As one explores this region at night, where crowding begins, one chief wonder is the swarm of children everywhere. At first it is taken for granted that they have homes. It is not till one sees them curled up on doorsteps, tucked away in old barrels and empty packing boxes, sleeping in coal cellars under the sidewalk, lying in any and every sheltered spot, that one begins to realize that there is no softer pillow for them. Shoeless, hatless, homeless, these children, if arranged in double lines, would make a procession eleven miles long. Pale, hunger-bitten, diseased, experienced in every wickedness, the natural enemies of society, they are the seed which will ripen into fruit for prison or end in hospitals or asylums. Last comes the potter's field, the rough box, the portion of a grave, nameless and unknown. The night sight of the great city is no less the night sight of life, and this underworld would appall even the man Dante, whose journey lay through hell, and whose inferno holds no more terrible picture than those to be encountered at a hundred points in a single night among the outcasts who call the streets their home. In all this region there is a blaze of light till long after midnight. Troops of wayfarers come and go, and the many bars do a thriving business. Then, one by one, lights dwindle and go out, and the foxes, wolves, and owls of humanity come forth and watch for their prey. From South Ferry, up toward the old slip, they lurk at corners, vigilant and silent, taking account of every passer-by, and robbing if a favorable moment comes. Thieves, smugglers, nook-and-corner men are seen for a moment, and then vanish, as swiftly as they came. Women are there, too some singing or laughing a laugh with no merriment in it but for the most part they too are silent now and then one who has walked with bent head and despairing eyes makes a sudden resolve there is a swift flying rush towards the dark water beyond and the river closes over one more victim such a sight is a familiar fact to the policemen of this quarter who have more than once caught the desperate creatures as they fled and found for them shelter, and in the end a chance of something better. Along the river front, a forest of masts and rigging can be dimly seen, rising above one's head, but for the most part darkness broods over the hulls of the vessels, affording every chance for river thieves to ply their trade. Opposite the docks are rows of old houses, their dormer windows telling to what era they belong. The dead and gone owners looked across to the green fields of Brooklyn, and went to bed peacefully at nine o'clock. Their successors haunt the docks, and are of every order of evil, never going to bed at all, in any orthodox sense of the phrase. All along this waterside is one of the most curious features of night life in New York, the sidewalk restaurants. Just beyond them, fruit ships are unloading and many eager street vendors flit about the docks in search of damaged fruit for the next day's trade. Worker, longshoreman, thief, it is all one to the restaurant owner who pours his hot coffee with no questions and only looks sharply at each piece of money as he rings it on the little counter. 
These places are not over five feet wide, and some ten or twelve long, and are enclosed with glass and boards. There is a shelf or counter at which half a dozen can sit at once, and on the opposite side are boilers, a range, a small desk, and some shelves for crockery. Codfish balls, hash, coffee, cakes and pies are all the bill of fare affords. The cakes, known as sinkers, being a species of muffin, rudimentary in character, but in high favour. No one is turned away, and sailors, negro longshoremen, marketmen, and stray women come and go, and fare alike. Yonder is a little Italian eating house no one would think of calling a restaurant. It is down in a cellar, and, as if to hide it more, the steps, old and broken, go down sideways along the front wall. The room is lit by a smoky kerosene lamp. A little bar is in one corner, and narrow wooden benches, black with use, run around the walls and are fastened to them. Here five cents will buy a plate of macaroni, a bit of toast, and a cup of coffee. It was in this dingy basement that a woman of about thirty drifted only the other day. She was a comely woman, with regular features and dark hair. A thin shawl was drawn over her shoulders. Her dress was ragged and worn, her face deathly and pale. She had no money, and when she faintly begged for food, a swarthy Italian paid five cents for the coffee and the crust of bread that were served to her. She drank the coffee and thrust the crust into her pocket. She would have gone then, but she was trembling with weakness, and the man who paid for her food held her back. She sat silent and thoughtful on the narrow bench until long after nightfall. Then she drew the crust from her pocket and began to nibble it. "'Let me warm the bread for you,' said the keeper's little boy. He put it on the stove, warmed it, and brought it back to the woman, who suddenly gasped and died. The police propped her up on the bench, and all night long her lifeless body waited for removal in the dead wagon to the morgue. In her pocket was found the remnant of the crust and a copy of these verses printed on red paper. On the street, on the street, to and fro with weary feet, aching heart and aching head, homeless, lacking daily bread, lost to friends and joy and name, sold to sorrow, sin and shame, ruined, wretched, lone, forlorn, weak and one, with weary feet, still I wander on the street. On the street, on the street, midnight finds my straying feet. Hark the sound of pealing bells. Oh, the tales their music tells. Happy hours forever gone. Happy childhood, peaceful home. Then a mother on me smiled. Then a father owned his child. Vanish, mocking visions sweet. Still I wander on the street. On the street, on the street, whither tend my wandering feet? Love and hope and joy are dead, not a place to lay my head, every door against me sealed. Hospital and potter's field, these stand open, wider yet swings perdition's yawning gate, thither tend my wandering feet, on the street, on the street. On the street, on the street, might I here a saviour meet, from the blessed far of years comes the story of her tears, whose sad heart with sorrow broke, heard the words of love he spoke, heard him bid her anguish cease, heard him whisper, go in peace. 
oh that i might kiss his feet on the street on the street of the dens of crimes hiding in the narrow streets opening up from the river the police have intimate knowledge we leave them behind as once more the little light of the water street mission comes in sight in the midst of dark and bloody ground its rays shine forth and behind the mission doors open day and night alike is the chief hope that illumines the night side of new york it is to the children's aid society that new york owes the first thought of protection and care for homeless girls whose condition till girls lodging houses were opened were in many points far worse than that of boys actual hardships were perhaps no greater but the very fact of sex made their position a more critical one while it doubled and trebled the difficulties of the work to be done years ago mr brace whose faith was of the largest and whose energy never flagged wrote to them i can truly say that no class we have ever labored for seemed to combine so many elements of human misfortune and to present so many discouraging features as this they form indeed a class by themselves it is no exaggeration to say that the girls lodging-house has cost us more trouble than all our greater enterprises together in view of the fact that this form of philanthropy is a vital one needed at every point in the united states where masses come together it is quite worth while to note the nature of the difficulties encountered they arise in the beginning from the nature of the material itself take a hundred girls who may either apply for admission or be brought by some friend to one of the various homes now open some have come from the country from quite respectable homes drawn to the city as by a magnet and certain that it holds plenty of work and good pay seeking this work which most often eludes them the scanty sums they may have brought with them dwindles away till at last they may find themselves on the street with their choice between the brightly lighted houses of vice and the forbidding police station this is one order and a common one no less common is the giddy class which has sought amusement in the city and has finally been induced to enter a house of bad character as a boarding-house and so been entrapped to break loose at last and take shelter even in prison if necessary in other cases the ill-treatment of a bad stepmother or father has driven girls from home or drunkenness has made it hideous and any refuge welcome many are orphans many the children of misfortune and among the throng are those of all races and countries the first and worst effect of their life is the fact that they do not like steady labor that their habits are utterly irregular that nothing has been thoroughly learned and that they have no shred of discipline they do not know the meaning of neatness their clothes are neglected and if they earn a dollar or two it goes in some foolish expenditure this is not the worst from babyhood they have been lied to and betrayed and they lie and betray in return with no more sense of responsibility than kittens here comes in the most difficult phase of the work that is intended to benefit them they are often pretty and bright but they are absolutely superficial their virtues and vices alike are of the surface they repent at one minute only to sin in the next and they do each with equal alacrity they seem to be children said mr brace but with women's passion and woman's jealousy and scathing tongue 
they trust a superior as a child they neglect themselves and injure body and mind as a child might they have a child's generosity and occasional freshness of impulse and desire of purity but their passions sweep over them with the force of maturity and their temper and power of setting persons by the ears and backbiting and occasional intensity of hate belong to a later period of life not unfrequently when real danger or severe sickness arouses them they show the wonderful qualities of womanhood in a power of sacrifice which utterly ignores self and a love which shines brightly even through the shadow of death these words were truly not only of homeless girls made vicious through no fault of their own but in many respects of those who wished to earn an honest living but had no training or discipline that fitted them for anything but the most poorly paid branches of labour it was evident that something must be done toward giving a training and plans were at once made when the girls lodging-house on st mark's place was opened there was in all the great city but one spot where they could take shelter and this was mr pease's five points mission this chiefly held vicious women who wished to reform and was thus quite unsuitable for those who were simply homeless and unprotected a sifting process was necessary but never was work more hedged about with difficulties the news spread that a home for the homeless was ready and a forlorn procession streamed toward it in the first weeks the police brought in wretched young wanderers to whom lodging had been given in the station houses country girls who had lost their money and all the different orders already referred to while from houses of vice girls who had been entrapped broke away and came hither leaving behind them every article of dress save what they had on the attempt to discriminate and to prevent the home from becoming a magdalen asylum involved everybody concerned in endless difficulties girls who weepingly told quite plausible and coherent stories of early bereavement and their longing to learn and to be helped turned out to be the most ingenious of romancers and often evil beyond reclaiming they would deceive the very elect was the verdict of the experienced and long-suffering matron and often when for the sake of all concerned she had refused to admit a girl whose breath and look both told her life and habits the rejected applicant went to the nearest station-house and told a fearful tale of the heartlessness and barbarity of institutions and the shameful hypocrisy of this one in particular little by little with infinite patience order began to emerge from this chaos the first thing was to teach each one the necessity of personal cleanliness order and rigid punctuality of which they knew nothing came next and then early rising and going to bed at a reasonable hour of household work they knew nothing and lessons in this began at the foundation scrubbing and cleaning came first then bed-making and last plain cooking sewing and machine-work the majority went out to work in shops or factories but many had to be employed in housework and so paid for their support far sooner than could be believed these girls carried on the work of a large establishment and in addition made thousands of garments for the many children in charge of the children's aid society at other points religious and moral instruction were of course a part of the teaching from the beginning amusements were planned and festivals of many orders and though often a girl upon whom much labour had been expended chose a return to her old life 
the great majority regarded the efforts made for them with deep gratitude and their improvement astonished every worker among them this is the story for every home in the city though none are of quite the same order as the old one on st mark's place in all of them the aim is to make the price of board barely cover expenses and thus a taint of charity attaches and the girls refuse to enter them everything depends upon the type of matron and whether she has strong sympathies as well as strong common sense without both work among working girls can never be anything but failure the old house on st mark's place is now known as the girls temporary home and has added many industries to its list the demand for instruction on the sewing machine had steadily lessened and it was decided a few years ago to add typewriting as a substitute only the better educated among the girls could take this but thirty-six studied in the first year ten of them at once finding good employment a large laundry employs many and a dressmaking department is equally useful numbers of girls are not adapted to any other work but are trained and steadied by this and often the most unmanageable seem to find their vocation here a few are sent to the west and in new surroundings look back to the home as the beginning of good fortune review the work of one day and the applicants at such a home and one will see what elements of tragedy of pathos and of perplexity enter in in early morning came a woman bringing with her her young daughter and niece they had just been put out by the landlord after pawning everything but the clothes they wore the girls had lost health standing behind the counter and the mother wanted them to learn housework all were detailed to places in the house where training would be given and later found good homes close upon them followed a pretty girl of eighteen who had come to america from england as a frolic not realizing how far it was she had been in the country two years taking a place as nurse but came to new york to see what it was like bringing no references from her boston place she cried with longing to go home but had no money and was taken in till something could be found for her to do as she talked two sisters rushed in children of twelve and fourteen driven out by a drunken mother and following them a pale girl just out of hospital then came a girl who had gone two days without food to save money enough for a night's lodging and who cried for joy when she found she could pay her way by work sometimes little children are brought though there is really no room for them and application is made by many parents whose daughters are idle and incorrigible at home and may mend here every phase of want and sorrow makes itself known in this room where the gentle matron sits and listens and nowhere is there more instant response or more effectual help the home has its romances too there is now a forewoman in a prominent broadway store who was brought to the home long ago by a kind-hearted expressman dripping with rain and with only a few rags to cover her she had big candid blue eyes and cheeks like an apple blossom and her prettiness was so enticing her attachments so sincere and her whole manner so gentle and modest that for many weeks no one suspected her as the author of innumerable petty thefts she found employment in a cigar factory and began at once to make showy presents supposedly out of her earnings at last she confessed voluntarily that she had picked the pockets of the very people to whom she gave presents 
and that she did it because she wanted to appear smart and generous. From the hour the confession was made, there was no further trouble, and in her present responsible position, for which she fitted herself in evening school, she is trusted absolutely, and has never disappointed the confidence reposed in her. Pretty Polly P., driven out by a drunken mother, came to the home as ragged and forlorn as the last-mentioned child. Carefully trained in the house, she found a situation in Connecticut, and lived there till eighteen, always prettier and prettier, where presently she married a young southern gentleman of good family, whom she had nursed in illness, and who knew all her story. They took rooms at the Fifth Avenue Hotel, and from here Pretty Polly went to the home loaded with gifts for all, nor has she ever lost interest in the inmates, though she has for years been a rich and fashionable woman. One little waif, one of the most troublesome ever received, was found after a year or two to be the grandchild of an old pair who had long sought some trace of the daughter who had left them years before. Their joy at finding the child knew no bounds, and she was at once placed in school and carefully trained. She, too, remembers the home and sends many a gift to those who lead less fortunate lives. The stories are as endless as the numbers who come and go, many thousands having been trained and helped since the opening in 1861. The night refugees ask no questions, but take in whoever applies. The number of such refugees is far below the need, each place being crowded to its utmost capacity. Long experience has taught their managers the best methods of dealing with those who apply, and they have done much to do away with the popular belief that it is useless to work for girls. The chief interest still centers on boys, who have trebled the amount of effort expended upon them, but each year sees a more common-sense view of things, and in time as fair a chance will be given to the woman-child as to the man. End of chapter 9